Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Hi, welcome to Miss Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Reddy, but my friends call me Spanners. So let's be friends. We've got a summer buffet over the next couple of weeks with two magazine-style shows. And midweek, we're going to have a standalone tech show. Now, I've been mixing in the vegetables of tech into your lasagna of magazine shows for a while now and this is the first one back standalone show i want to see if we're all big kids happy to eat our veg i want to see big download numbers for that tech show hosted by matt trumpets and of course all our expert tech news from matthew summerfield aka summers f1 but we've got a great lineup over these next two segment shows as well we're going to hear from our friends over at formula nerds uh, we're going to catch up with uh, tomo f1 uh, we're also going to be taking a look into IndyCar in this show with Tom Gaymore, which will be absolutely fantastic. We've got a real lawyer, Peter Wright from Digital Law UK, who's going to talk to us, talk us through all the connotations of all that complex contract stuff that's been going on in F1 silly season. Bear in mind, this is being recorded on the Thursday. So any sensational things that happen on Friday and Saturday will completely ruin that segment. But hopefully you'll get some good insight from Peter. But first, we're going to take a deep look into the past. Okay, so I am guilty as an F1 fan of only looking at things in my lifetime. I'm like the Sam Beckett in Quantum Leap, you know, where I only go from like 1980 to present day. But Jeff O'Boyle is here to help us look deep into the past. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Spanners. How are you doing? Yeah, you weren't born 
at the time of our subject today either. No, I, I'm I'm a mere slip of a lad, just like you, but uh, born a few years afterwards. But it's still, I think, still worth looking into this. And because it's difficult to find out exactly what did happen at the time, hopefully the numerous mistakes that I make in this segment <laughs> will be glossed over and difficult to verify or otherwise. No, absolutely hammer, Jeff, for any mistakes and historical inaccuracies in the YouTube comments. If nothing else, it's always great just to start a conversation like that. But first, I'll ask you, when I was on... Uh, on the Ringer podcast, there's a lot of new F1 fans there. And I say to them, you know, really, you guys are, are, are all but caught up on the sport now. And in a year, you'll know 99% of what old F1 fans know. You just lack a bit of historical context. And I feel that way about pre-kind of Prost, really. I often joke, well, before Prost, I don't care. But it's because I don't know. It doesn't mean anything to me. Why are you so obsessed with historic F1? It it probably goes back to to my childhood. Um, I grew up in a household that had a racing car in the in the driveway. My dad had really? a, a March. Yeah, my Mar- My dad had a March Formula Two car, which he used in hill climbs and sprints. So uh, nice. it's um, it was quite quite a cool thing. A massive sort of huge wheels on the back. It it looked like a proper racing car. Oh, yeah. It was well, what I think a proper racing car should look like. It had a huge wing at the front, wing at the back and a, a two liter turbocharged Cosworth um, engine in, in, in the back of it. So it was an absolute beast of a thing. It, it, to my mind, I've watched Formula One, you know, since then, since I was a kid. But there's something about those huge cars in the 1970s with just brute force power in the back of them sliding everywhere. <laughs> no, you know, no AWS striking zone graphics that, that's just pure racing. There's the, you know, the risk element of it as well. The tracks were a bit ropey at times and it's just a, a wonderful area. Lots of variety in who could win as well at that time. You know, you'd have Brabham, Ferrari, uh, Shadow, uh, Hesketh. Um, BRM, you know, a whole host of, of uh, names that are gone now. And it was Emerson Fittipaldi's era with Hunt, Lauda, um, Andretti, mm. uh, you know, uh, Carlos Reutemann, Pache. You know, it, it was a great era for characters in the sport um, and just pure racing. I, I absolutely love it. Yeah. And obviously, before we go to Rose Tinted, there was also probably a lower general driver standard on the grid reliability wasn't as much of a thing but also you know you had 55 cars turn up and only the best 10 got to race or whatever it was um a very very different sport so the comparisons to, to modern f1 i think always fall flat as a, as a tv spectacle now i don't think it would sell but at the time and especially if i think of 80s formula one like we didn't know any better so the fact that the only graphic you got was the gap between say first and second it, it didn't matter back then no it didn't because we, we we didn't know what we didn't know did we it was the it, it looked okay at the time yeah it, it probably wouldn't sell these days and certainly with the fatality rate and injury rate at the time it wouldn't sell yeah. there were things it was a bit amateurish there were driver disputes in in 1970 oh, oh good we don't, we don't have any of those now <laughs> Well, yeah, but the driver strikes. So oh, in 1975, wow. uh, they rocked up at Barcelona and the drivers refused to go out because really? the, bar- the barriers that had been erected around the track hadn't been bolted together. So, oh, God. <laughs> so it, wasn't, it wasn't ideal. It was a little bit uh, amateurish at times. You put drivers jumping teams midway through the season, um, stuff not being screwed on properly. They, they didn't, in the era that we're going to talk about, teams didn't practice pit stops at all. <laughs> Ferrari were the only team that had the resources to actually do that uh, oh, because really? you didn't stop for tires unless it was wet but, and then became dry or vice versa. No such thing as intermediate tires either, which we'll, we'll come on to in, 
in in one of the races we talk about but it was yeah it was a little bit like anyone with with a few quid and a, a cigarette sponsor could have a crack at it um <laughs> they might not qualify or pre-qualify but but it was, also, it was an era where it's a little bit more enlightened in some ways because even though you know the the grid girls were in bikinis and all of that sort of bad historic stuff there was a female formula one driver who, called lena lombardi in 1975 who was actually very well accomplished and, and a, a march uh factory driver so um yeah a bit for, forward thinking in in one sense but very very backwards in another well we are looking backwards and today we are focusing on the hesketh racing team and that was the team of course featured in the movie rush so first off how historically accurate was the representation of Hesketh Racing in the movie Rush? Yeah, it's it's. I think it's fairly fairly accurate. Uh, it, to give you a bit of background, it was founded in 1972 by Lord Alexander Fairmore Hesketh at oh, just 22 nice years old. Uh, at 22 years old, proving that all he needed was a, a little ambition and a large inheritance to start a <laughs> Formula One uh, team. But what a plucky outsider! All you needed was a large inheritance. He's uh yeah he 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 famously um didn't didn't want sponsorship on the car he thought it was vulgar and ghastly and when you've got you know quite a lot of cash in the bank you, you might well think that but that turned out in the end to be quite a costly decision for him but the portrayal in Rush is that the Hesketh team were all party animals it was champagne in the uh, in the paddock it was caviar it was 125 mm. foot yacht at Monaco that was rented for the team all of that is absolutely true all oh, right but okay what 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 rush possibly sort of glosses over a little bit because in the movie the main focus is 1976 and by that point uh, hunt has gone to mclaren and hesketh is no more in well it's sort of we'll come on to it it's not what it used to be um but um the, the team were actually really professional uh, lord hesketh would say that they were there to have fun but they weren't there to be made fun of so they, you know, they hired Harvey Postlethwaite to design the, their first F1 car, and he went on to have huge success at Ferrari and other teams. They had mechanics who, after 75, left and went to work for um, Hunt at, at McLaren. Others went to Ferrari. They had some really technical, technically mm. gifted people there. And all right, they built the car in a, in, a, in a stables at Lord Heska's estate, and that's a bit weird, isn't it? But they did have the smallest budget in F1 and still managed to win an F1 race in merit, on merit rather, in 1975 at Sandport, which we'll come on to. So, so that's with James Hunt. So, yeah. So did they did the they start? They started as a F2 team, but it was a little bit more fluid back then between F1 and F2. Yeah, a lot of the drivers would compete in both series. So um, if you look back even at um, Jackie Stewart's era, they would race Formula 2 and F1, and Colin Chapman was tragically killed in a, an F2 race uh, when probably something on the Lotus broke. But uh, yeah, they, they would race be between them. So in 1972, they, they started with an F2 team. The driver was Bubbles Horsley, who later became the, the team manager, quite a flamboyant character in his own right. He, unlike many racing drivers, recognised his own limitations and they put him in a docile Mark IX, terribly un uncompetitive car. Uh, he, he said, that's it, I'm out of here. I'm not doing well enough, uh, but I found your next driver. So a guy called James Hunt, um, who had a reputation for on-track incidents, as you might have seen in Rush, uh, had been fired by the March Formula 3 team and was at a loose end. So he agreed to sign up and drive for the Formula 2 Hesketh team in its in its first season. And that that car was, it was interesting. It was a March 712. Uh, Hunt hadn't been paid any wages by Max Mosley, who ran the March team at that point. So in lieu of any wages, they loaned the team uh, a one-year-old 
F2 car uh, and uh, the, uh, Lord Hesketh bought two Cosworth BDA engines and off they went racing. And uh, the one funny incident, the car was relatively competitive when it when it ran. But in F2. Was, yeah, F2, yeah. but like every car in the grid, it was unreliable. So they didn't finish too many races, but there was one race at Frankfurt, or sorry, at, at Hockenheim rather, uh, where uh, the car stopped as it often did. The German crowd booed James Hunt as he got out of the car. So he retaliated with a Hitler salute, Ooh. which wasn't a great look, even Ooh. back then when things were a little bit different. As you'd expect, the crowd reacted terribly badly to this. Yes, I, I agree with that reaction. <laughs> the, team, the team had to flee Frank to Frankfurt Airport and get out of the country quickly. So um, even then, you could see in, in F2, they weren't going to be a conventional sort of media savvy, um, media trained F2 team or F1 team. So does that, that unit of Hesketh racing in F2 with James Hunt as its number one driver or only driver only driver only driver. one car team yeah. oh, okay and then they just picked up and went okay well, let's do let's try f1 yes in 1973 mm. they thought this guy hunts pretty good we we think we know what we're doing here in formula two let's make this step up to formula three so they bought a another march i seem to be saying march as if that's the only car this, this podcast is brought to you by march <laughs> racing uh they bought a 731 used it for two races get your discount Harvey... on march race cars by saying apex <laughs> no go on sir <laughs> um and uh, yeah they, they used it for two races and then harvey postlethwaite moved to hesketh and developed out the hesketh 308 which was their first the first car it's a good car it was pretty competitive it finished second in the u.s grand prix in 1973 first um, season the, first season yeah, first season. So oh, wow. they only entered eight races. Um, the first one was Monaco, where uh, James Hunt was running sixth in, in their debut before the engine failed. You'll hear a lot about that. Um, he then he scored a point at their next race at um, the French Grand Prix, then fourth for the British Grand Prix and um, second in the, um, the US Grand Prix. So it was good. Just worth noting season. that at that time, you only scored points in the top six. So scoring a point in Grand Prix racing used to be like like the holy grail for midfield teams. Yeah, sixth and sometimes fifth, I think, in that, that era as well, oh, uh, right. depending on which year it was. So it was tough mm. to, to get points. Um, but they were buoyed by that performance in 1973 and, and had a good go at it in 1974, where they, they entered the full season. They only had eight races in, in 73. Uh, 74, uh, first race of the season, uh, Argentina Hunt led, which was pretty impressive. But the car retired in nine of the 15 races. So, yeah, to finish first, you must first finish. Yeah. You didn't finish too often. Wow. But when he did, he finished well. The car finished third three times. And um, yeah, it, there was a, it had a win in 1974, but it wasn't a championship race. It was, there was a, a big race at the time called the BRDC International Trophy that was held at Silverstone every year. Nearly every big F1 team entered the race. So it was a full grid. It was a, a proper, proper event. It just didn't stand for championship oh, points. Okay. And in that race, uh, Hunt put the car on pole by 1.7 seconds, which even then was pretty, pretty decent. People complain about field spread these days. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> well, they, they did get a good race in the end, despite the domination in in, uh, in qualifying, because uh, his clutch slipped at the start. And when he was trying to find a gear, the, this is very 70s F1, the gear knob came away in his hand. Of course it did. <laughs> <laughs> so he's left uh, in 14th place, not moving with it with a stub instead of a, a gear stick. <laughs> By half distance, he got up to second place. Uh, so he was flying through the field, got up behind Carlos Reuterman and overtook him with two wheels on the grass at 160 miles an hour through Woodcote. And people who were there at the time say it was one of the, you know, the best 
overtakes of that era for for anyone who, who was you off track <laughs> track limits wasn't a thing back then mm. <laughs> it's only two it's if, it, if two wheels are on grass you can keep the place okay so yeah that was their first win was 1974 and they i think they thought they were they'd really arrived at that point uh they didn't win uh, another race in 74 and didn't win any championship races but three third places uh, was still pretty pretty impressive considering yeah their their budget at the time was around three hundred thousand pounds for a season Brabham were rumored to be spending maybe six hundred thousand, maybe a bit more than that. They had sponsorship from Elf. That you know it was a good outfit. McLaren had sponsorship from Marlborough, and then you've got Ferrari, who had a five million pounds oh, a year right. budget. <laughs> okay, yeah, okay. So it's a huge difference. So you know, again, people complaining about the budget cap not quite being right now. That's a massive difference. And when you think most of Hesketh's budget was going on lobsters and, and yachts as well as that, that's incredible. Yeah, it was it was pretty impressive. They didn't have premises to pay for, I suppose, because the, the cars were built at, at the stables, oh, yeah. uh, which Just were in his house. Into yeah. yeah, his his massive <laughs> massive mansion. Yeah, but um, it was still pretty impressive to spend three hundred grand and, and beat the Ferraris on merit. I mean, nineteen seventy five was was kind of a is the season that that's most interesting, I think, because of the win at Sandvoort. Um, they uh, the three hundred eight that uh, Harvey Postlethwaite designed was really slippery, so low drag car. And it was the only car that the Ferraris couldn't just drive past. Ferrari had the 712T, which was a, a phenomenal piece of kit. It didn't start off all that well at the start. It was a little bit sort of middling in the first few races. But once they got it sorted out, um, it was so fast in a straight line that Lauda and Reuterman were, were practically unbeatable once once they really got up and running. But they arrived in Zandvoort. Ferrari all um, all uh, lock out in the front row. So you got Lauda on pole, Reuterman in second. But the, the heavens had opened before the race started. So everyone starts on wets, as I said at the start. There's yeah. no, no inters in this period. You've either got, you've got to pick a, pick a side, wets or dries or slicks. And um, in Monaco, Hunt had worked something out that none of the other teams seemed to. He'd worked out that if the track was rubbered up enough, even if it was wet, if you were on slicks, there was enough grip to be quick. Uh, whenever it looked as if you, you know only a mad person would stop and, and put slicks on. So in Monaco, he stopped on lap seven, I think it was, really early stop, but the, the pit stop was a disaster. As as I said, they didn't practice yeah. pit stop, so it was go. always going to be a disaster. It was 20 seconds or 30 seconds longer than it should have been. He goes out, he's really fast, but he's way down the pack, and in the end he crashes out uh, on the outside racing against uh, De Palier. Brilliant incident where he's on the outside, definitely Hunt's fault, goes straight on into the barrier. And when the marshals come to try and get him off the track, he, he has a fight with one of the marshals, of like course. physically swings yeah. at him, refuses to leave a live racetrack so that on the next lap, when De Palier comes around again, he can actually, he just waves uh, and shakes a fist at him. There's got to be some footage of that. There is. Yeah, it's, uh, it's in, uh, if you look at the, if you've got F1 TV, uh, a subscription, which if you're into historic racing is, is definitely well worth having. Um, there's a season review from 75 with that, that clip in it okay. which is absolutely brilliant look that up straight after this <laughs> but but the, the the hunt obviously furious at his own mistake and happy to blame someone else he had stumbled on something about this wet dry track uh, and it being rubbered up so when they get to zandvoort starts on wet and 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 pits on lap seven when the track's still really really wet um by comparison the ferrari stopped on laps 13 and 14 and no one believed that hunt had made the right call it looked like it was mm. far too early and there was no you know, TV footage of the, the race itself. The radio commentary at, at the track was in Dutch. 
So the teams didn't really know how how anyone was doing. They they could see a little bit of the, the the cars going past on the pit straight, so they'd see two red ones and then a white one or whatever it might be. But whenever they when Hunt came out on lap four, sorry, when uh, Lauda came back out in lap fourteen, they couldn't believe it. Uh, Hunt was leading, so he he'd, he'd invented the undercut. Uh, <laughs> it was an absolute strategic masterstroke to go on slicks on a track that was still very very wet or or fairly wet, um, and uh, and he was leading. By a fair margin, you've got two red dots um, coming up behind him, mm. and Hunt, sorry, Lauda in particular, uh, made really good ground and was all over his gearbox towards the end of the race. But that Hesketh being so slippery in a straight line, being so draggy, uh, he couldn't find a way past. So, uh, so Hunt won the race in in the the, the car with the smallest budget uh... on merit against the all conquering Ferrari. It was one of the great underdog races of the. It's, of the it's year. like a perfect storm, really, having discovered that thing as well. Zandvoort isn't the biggest track anyway, and people, I guess, forget how much harder overtaking was in that time. Yeah, it was tricky and dangerous. Uh, uh, if you if you get it wrong, Zandvoort is tight and twisty anyway. Um, but um, but he put in the laps to get ahead, you know, on, and was ahead on merit on pace because he was on the right tires and and willing to take take risks, I suppose. But it was the 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 race was so impressive that Enzo Ferrari uh, invited Lord Hesketh to come and see him uh, in in Italy at Maranello, and he he wanted to work on a collaboration because the Ferrari engine was all conquering. It was so fast, but their chassis development wasn't quite as good as it could have been, and they wanted to sort of team up and have a Ferrari-Hesketh collaboration, but Hesketh sort of turned it down. At that point, he wasn't quite bankrupt, so he, he probably... <laughs> Uh, probably didn't think he needed to, yeah. and he was worried that they would they would put the English driver out and put an Italian in instead, and there would be friction. It would all be very Italian. Uh, but, it would um, all be very Italian. Okay, clipping that for a replay. All right, and carry. No, no, you carry on. <laughs> so, so the risk that the team would become very Italian a little bit, acrimonious a little bit, sort of a, um, and other other stereotypes are available. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, he, Jeff, he turned it down. Oh yeah. Uh, well, also, there's that pride of wanting to continue to be a privateer outfit as well. You know, it's his yeah. team. It wouldn't be his team anymore if they collaborated, collaborated, i.e., acquired, acquired. Yeah, you'd you'd lose the champagne. It'd be mid market recycle at best, wouldn't it? So, um, yeah, they, they in '75 they, they did uh, they did carry on. Yeah. The car was uh, pretty unreliable. Six retirements. Um, but they did finish uh, fourth in the championship, which for a team like Hesketh with one car alone was was pretty impressive. And they had a, a couple of second places as well. No more wins, but but really good. It was only, you know, you'd think at the end of 75, this is it now. We can yes. springboard 76. We're really going to smash this. But unfortunately, uh, there was a recession in the UK, much as we're about to have uh, again today. And um Lord Hesketh had a number of business interests. His inheritance didn't all go in Formula One. He, he invested in lots of other things as well. And in 1975, he was mainly in the business of losing money. Uh, so he, he um, yeah, it, it was going down the pan really for him personally and, and financially. So there was a deadline of, um, it was uh, November 1975. The, the HF1 team that intended to race the following year had to submit their details of their sponsor, and the sponsor had to bring at least three hundred thousand pounds to the team. I think it was an attempt to try and weed out some of the real poor teams at, okay. at the back of the grid that failed to qualify. But, but with your, the sponsor lots. could be a private sponsor, so it could be his own personal wealth. Yeah, it could mm. have been if he hadn't lost it. Uh, so, so in this is in the the Rush movie where you know 
hunt turns up and the car is there's the people walking out with boxes and uh, yeah. it's all the, the party's over and then he moves to um to mclaren famously so how, how big a blow for hesketh would that be to lose their superstar driver i would imagine at that time i feel like the driver probably made an, an awful lot more difference than it does now yeah if i think you got it, a real I, star he would do uh, yeah i mean he was a he was a real talent um and uh, to lose him was it was a real blow but Lord Hesketh wound the team up and he couldn't continue. And they were a real partnership, Hesketh and Hunt. They were, they were as thick as thieves. Um, and it was only, the team only carried on because Bubbles Horsley managed to sort of get the remnants of it together and create a new Hesketh team. But it was never the same. It was it was a bit of a disaster, a bit of a joke, really, from 76 to, to finally wound up in 78. The, the financial position got steadily worse. The results were absolutely atrocious. And because of the flamboyant mm. lifestyle, the only sponsors they could attract were um, Rizla uh, and Penthouse Spot for, for younger okay. readers. Yeah. For younger listeners, it was a gentleman's magazine back mm-hmm. in the day. And Rizla is a way to roll legal tobacco products into cigarettes. Only legal tobacco. There are no illegal tobacco products, as far as I understand. Yep. Um, but we're on, we're but saying we- the same thing. When he was when he was trying to secure sponsorship, uh, Lord Hesketh spoke with two sponsors who were interested. Um, one was um, uh, Philip Morris, who makes legal cigarettes, and um, you difficult to believe in the modern era. But actually, the reason that Philip Morris uh, cited as as not investing in the team was that they were too well known. There were too many personalities attached to the team. Hunt was seen as as being a bit of a, a ladies' man, as they would said back in the day. Uh, probably probably be in a register if, if he was around today but they um it was uh, allegedly, it, it, allegedly, it tra- allegedly philip morris the maker of cigarettes yeah. yes that the, their reputation was too racy and it would detract from the good name of of the oh. philip morris cigarettes which is you know remarkable to think of that these days that celebrities were putting off uh, a sponsor from getting involved yeah the, the other potential sponsor they, they spoke to was even worse it was Parmalat, you know, the, the Italian giants. Um, they'd offered uh, 1.5 million up front, which would obviously would have been more than enough to, to support the team. But uh, Heska tells the story that uh, the deal was you get 1.5 million, but you've got to give 750K back. And it was a money laundering scam. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, he didn't didn't bother going down that route. And, and that was it. They were they were gone. So, uh, so they did have three post-hunt, post meaningful success years on the grid you know but were they this was back in the days where you had to turn up and qualify like did they did they at least have drivers did they get onto grids yeah sort of uh 76 77 they they sort of qualified they had a a number of different drivers who would turn up most of whom would just abandon them again they had they had one good race in 78 with Derek Daly who qualified and was actually dicing for the lead whenever a stone went through his visor and, and he had to retire oh. uh, but that was the only race in 70, 78 that they managed to qualify for and after I think it was six races or eight races in 78 the team just folded completely so it was yeah they were they were no longer the plucky underdog who could who could win races and compete for podiums. They were just an underdog that was performing as an underdog would be expected to. Uh, it was yeah, it was it was poor. Ah, is he still knocking about? Is he Lord Hesketh? Lord Hesketh is still knocking about, as mm. far as I know. He he recorded a podcast with um, you know, the Beyond the Grid podcast. Uh, no, uh, never heard of it. Yeah, no. me neither. Uh, but I understand he he recorded one on that, and he he's it's quite a colourful character and goes into some of this stuff in a, a bit more detail. But yeah, he um, I don't think he regrets any of it, uh, which is. 
<laughs> yeah, which is nice, I suppose, in one way, because he, although he came from a privileged background, he he did lose the lot um, at, 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 in seventy five and managed to scrape his way back. But yeah, it's um, I think it, I think it's a great story. Uh, no, no, overall. It, it is, and there's loads of things to lament. Obviously, we can look back with rose tinted glasses. I genuinely believe the modern F one product is a is a better product than what you had in the seventies and eighties and nineties. In fact, um, but you know, talking about the drivers moving between series more i've long wanted some fluidity obviously i want bigger grids i would like that i would like the gap between the tiers to be closer because really f2 and f3 is just increasingly it's just rich kids coming through trying to get their f1c whereas i'd like it if like oh a driver he's having a hard time in f1 but he's actually he's got a few races in f2 that gets him back on and, and a team in f2 could pick up and go let's try and qualify for, for F1. That would make it a bit more of a dream factory for me, a bit more of a European sport model. But the, the franchise model, I don't think is going anywhere. No, it's not going anywhere. There's, there's too much money invested in it by the, the, the franchise holders at the moment. But I would, yeah, like you, I would love to see that. And it would settle, well, it would help to settle some of the debates about is the IndyCar driver really mm. um, at the same level as an F1 driver? Well, let's find out. Let's let's stick a couple in and, and give them three or four races and see how they get on. Yep. Let's have a rotating IndyCar-sponsored F1 car where they, they they give you know two drivers three races and another two drivers three three races. And um, you don't have this sort of McLaren model of having 15 IndyCar drivers all contracted and, and, and 10 Formula 1 drivers and they're all expected to drive two cars next season. So it would be brilliant mm. to see that. And do you remember the fuss that, that Alonso caused whenever he... Um, he was allowed to race uh, Indy 500 and he was allowed to race in uh, Le Mans 24 and stuff like that. It was contractually, it was a, was a, you know, a really complex thing to arrange. And I can see the team's perspective. They don't want their prize asset bending mm-hmm. it at spa in a sports car and breaking both legs or whatever, but yeah. it would be so good to see it. It would. Be would so lovely. But it feels like the F1 drivers now are such celebrities and such superstars that they, they command that kind of wrapping cotton wool kind of approach. Whereas, you know, maybe it would be better if they were less kind of revered in that way and were a little bit more malleable and had to work their way through different types of contracts and maybe didn't, uh, sorry, different kinds of series and maybe didn't have to spend 50 days a year playing the how level can I keep this glass of milk in a sports car challenge because the thirst for, for them being on TV is so high. But there's one of two things that could happen with the popularity of Formula One at the moment. Obviously, it could fizzle away, but the most likely is, A, it sucks away all the attention from other motorsports, which, if you look at the MotoGP figures at Silverstone, it doesn't it didn't look very promising. Or we start getting it that there's so many motorsport enthusiasts that other series start building up with, you know, and maybe we can get the things we want out of Formula One that we're talking about here. Maybe we can get that from other series. And, uh, you know, we do start watching Formula E because of other drivers that have come in and out of F1 and the Junior Series. Of course, Formula E would have to make an effort to tell us where on earth we're supposed to watch them. But, you know, we can dream, can't we, Jeff? That's part of the the charm of Formula E. If, if, you know, if, <laughs> it's if, part uh, of the game. You... you have to find out where it is. Yeah, if it's meant to be, you'll find it. You know, yeah. it's 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 like Lord of the Rings. The, um, yeah, but the, 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 you're right. I think um, it's, a, it's a shame in a sense that we have to look to other series to get what we want out of Formula One. Brad was talking about this recently and on IndyCar and he loves IndyCar 
primarily because it's almost a spec series. So any one of the teams could rock up and win um, and the driver makes a huge difference. F1 less. So obviously it's, it's more to do with the car and the engineers and the, you know, the aero time they've got and, and, and all of that. But I, I personally, I'd love to see a return to the, do you, I know you're old enough to remember because you're incredibly old, but do you remember back in, in, uh, was it the nineties? They had the kart race every year at Bercy in Paris where current and and ex Formula One drivers, um, mostly Formula One drivers, would, it was a bit like Race of Champions, but it was in hundred cc carts around a, a oh, track. Nice. And there was Senna and Prost. Oh had yes, a, a I do remember. Gone. Yes, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. It was amazing. Mm. Uh, it was brilliant to watch, and and they took it so so seriously because it was equal machinery yeah. and you know it, it, reputations it, it, on the line and all reputations sorts. Yeah. on the line. Yeah, and Senna had to race in a. A, a different cart because he was sponsored by a different fuel manufacturer. He was Shell, I think, rather than Elf, who sponsored the event. So <laughs> there you've got your first con- con- sort of driver contractual dispute. But something like yeah. that would be amazing. The race of champions is is is, is okay, but it's not quite not quite the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, let's have a let's have an IndyCar race in the UK and and have have four four additional drivers from Formula One in it. Well, What's, you're you know, you're going to want to stay tuned then because later in this episode we are going to be speaking to. Sky Sports commentator Tom Gaymore, and I'm going to try and get him to twist my arm and and finally let me take the plunge and make me take the plunge into watching IndyCar because I do keep meaning to. It's it, you won't be disappointed. I think it's it's some really good racing. Uh, the tire compounds there are two red and black, so there's a there's a prime strategy or an alternate strategy, and it's um, they usually converse converge somewhere towards the end as as these things do. But the racing is really good. Some of the street circuits in in the US are phenomenal. There, you know, they still go to places like Long Beach and and uh, Mid Ohio and all of that. And the ovals, I can sort of I can just about sit and watch. I'll watch as much uh, motor racing as my marriage can tolerate, but. Uh, <laughs> The ovals, I kind of draw the line up a little bit if, oh, I'm, okay. if I'm running out of credit. I think, yes, that's good. That's a good point. Yeah, when you run out of spousal credit. But I do want to understand the tactics of oval racing more, having done a little bit of it on, on the sim. And when it's not a crash fest, it's really fascinating. Like you lose touch with that lead pack. Obviously, you know, the, the use of the yellows liberally is quite interesting as well. Um, but yeah, okay. But to say that, I'm not doing down modern Formula One. I will be clear. I think it is the best product at the moment that Formula One has put out. And thank you for taking us all the way into the past. You can follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff O'Boyle one I want you to all go and follow him now. Not the original Jeff O'Boyle, Jeff O'Boyle one Thanks, Bunners. Yeah, I got locked out of the original ones. I can't remember uh, oh, any, any passwords, oh, so, so that's good. Oh, uh, but no, thank you very much. Really I appreciate it. And hope to see you at a karting event soon over here on the mainland. Great. Thank you. Look forward to it. Thanks for your time, Jeffer Boyle. Now, next, we can't ignore the fact that there has been massive contract shenanigans over in the world of Formula One. The silly season took a massive turn when Sebastian Vettel decided he'd had enough of Formula One and then immediately, having assured allegedly, Alpine, that he was staying with them. Fernando Alonso instantly declared betrayal and moved to Aston Martin. So, how do we unpick all that contract stuff? Why don't we bring in an eminent solicitor, a solicitor of the Supreme Court of England and Wales, no less, and the founder and managing director of Digital Law UK. It's Peter Wright. Peter, thank you so much for giving up some of your very, very expensive time to join us in the shed. 
No, it's great to be back on and uh, great to be, you know, as a listener of Missed Apex, um, it's, it's great to be able to uh, also then be able to uh, contribute a little bit on this, as I suppose, slightly more niche niche subject, perhaps. Yeah, because it all went very contracty and law-y and I realise I don't know some of the very basics of everything that's been talked about. I don't know what an option is. I don't know any of the terms of the contract. I don't know what the core of contract arbitration is in F1. Hopefully you know most of those things, although we should be clear, it's not like you've had a spy microphone in the Alpine office. No. So everything we're going to discuss is all from publicly available sources of information. Um, you know, I, I'm not advising any of the people involved here. Uh, so it it is literally just a matter of um, looking at the, those news articles, but hopefully being able to give people a little bit of an insight, given what I do in the day job, which is very often looking at uh, contracts, wording and, and what some of this stuff means and what some of this terminology means as well, which I appreciate to, to the uninitiated can be um, a little bit of a, a foreign language. Think of it as a Formula One fan when you first come to the sport and you've got no idea about all this stuff about engines and tyres and seas. fuel setting yeah. and all. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So uh, so let me, let's see if I can hope, hopefully uh, shed a little bit of light on that for, uh, for all of the uh, listeners out there. And it's good to have a friend like you, Peter. You know, occasionally we've had... Uh, whatsapps from you over the years and and especially when you first started doing stuff with this of like you might be breaking the law there so thanks for keeping me out of jail peter judicious use of the word allegedly um (laughs) uh, i I noticed i noticed it proliferates more and more and more um so you're you're certainly getting used to it certainly getting used to it oh I, i hear your mild northern twang in my ear going allegedly every time something comes up and I, and I make sure we're covered. But look, let's see if we can uh, dig into some of the, the basics. Like, okay, why do drivers have contracts? What's the nature of those contracts? It, it doesn't seem like they're worth a lot once people start changing their mind. Um, well, yes and no. Um, I think the, the important thing to bear in mind with these contracts is that they've evolved from probably what they were 30, 40 years ago in terms of, right, you're going to drive for us this year and, and this is what we're going to pay you, through to these massive commercial beasts now that contain everything from image rights to um, personal sponsorship to how many media days you'll be doing with the team and, you know, a- a- agreeing to sort of how, how often you'll be in the factory and how often you'll be in the sim uh, all the way through to um, the things you'd expect to have in a contract in terms of how much leave you get, you know. But you, you, I think it's important to bear in mind, I mean, we, we keep see, seeing in Formula One at the moment that the, the teams are getting worn out uh, with the number of races. That's the same with the drivers. So you can imagine that would be the subject of a lot of haggling yeah. between driver and team in terms of, you know, uh, how, you know, obviously I'll be doing all the races, but media days and adding all that together is it, actually something you'd want to make sure is squared off don't forget this was lewis hamilton's thing a few years ago he actually said i don't want to do that media day in london before british grand prix one year because he said i will be tired and exhausted before going to what for me is the biggest weekend of the year and then what did he do he went along to the race and won it and you sort of stood back and thought he might have had a point there you know yeah but thankfully you know no one made a big fuss out of him not being there so it was all fine God, God, he did get a lot of abuse for not attending that that day. But I mean, when you then hear from, I know this is a bit off topic, but Daniel Ricciardo talking about the Australian Grand Prix actually being a nightmare for him because of the amount of extra press and, and media, you can start to get this this picture of what it must be like to be a driver and just try and squeeze a little bit of time out for yourself. It might even be like, don't call me 
on certain days, like I am not contactable from this period of the summer to that period of the summer. But it, it does make you wonder how, what's the balance of power, would you guess, between the drivers and the teams these days? Uh, it will vary depending on who the team is and who the driver is. Uh, so you can imagine that um, drivers just coming into the sport, ordinarily, and we'll come to this, ordinarily you'd expect the driver just coming into the sport is going to be desperate just to get a seat um, in you know what is the Elite Series, the World's Elite Series. There's only um, a very limited grid. You just want to get on there. Uh, and that's ordinarily what you see, and that's why you see drivers like Fernando Alonso starting off at Minardi uh, uh, 20 years ago. But... Uh, as we're seeing now, we've got Oscar Piastri, who's actually turning around and saying, well, actually, um, you know, potentially I've got several options here and um, uh, I'm, I'm going to want to make sure that I can do what I want to do, not necessarily what the, the team that I've been associated with so far wants me to do. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Okay, so let's work backwards on this then. So the very end of the chain is Daniel Ricciardo, knowing that he's not wanted as a driver, but having a contract and reportedly is now saying in whatever tribunal or discussions they have, give me 21 million and I'll walk out of this contract. But if I get another F1 drive, I'll give you back the 21 million. So... Like how does that work? how does that work? Obviously, we're speculating, but he was in contract for next year. What leg did McLaren have to just replace him? Because after all, it is a meritocratous position, isn't it? So this was the interesting thing. Uh, I, I read again on a publicly available article here, but apparently McLaren do not have a break clause in that contract. What's a break clause? So, so a break clause is when both parties might want to make sure, or one party might want to make sure. Look. This could be a fixed-term contract for so many years, three years, but I want to walk away after two. Um, at a very basic level, anyone out there who is renting a property 
this should be the first thing you look for in your lease. So, you know, if you go and sign the lease with the landlord and you're working out how you're going to get the deposit together and, and when your moving date's going to be, the actual really important thing is to look at that lease and see, well, how long does it run for? Yeah. And if I need to walk away from this, am I locked into some you know, awful notice period? Or does it just say, no, this is a three-year term and, and you're, you're stuck in it, mate? And yeah. you don't want to find that out at the point when you want to leave or break it. So yeah. that's a, a break clause. Ah, so yeah, looking yeah. at this, yeah. So, I mean, it, it could be as simple. And uh, I'll say, yeah. Sorry, Pete. What's in the news? Sorry, Peter, we've got the, the lag no, suddenly says, increased. You know, apparently yeah. what it's... To... <laughs> Carry on, it's fine. <laughs> no, so what, what it's saying, the, the news reports suggest that McLaren did not negotiate a clause that allowed them to say we only want to have you as our driver for a, a bit you know, say two of those three years and be able to break that contract at some point um this is a rare situation it doesn't normally happen i think we have to also look at the context and say i think it's rare for a driver to move teams and on the face of it certainly as far as we in the sport think underperform in the way that Daniel Ricciardo has. And we don't know why that is the no. case either. And I think we have to be quite careful about thinking about that in terms of we don't know what it's like in the team. We don't know what the, the, there could be things in terms of support in there. Who knows? But for whatever reason, on the face of it, um, his much more less experienced teammate, who is not a race winner, let's not forget that, um, you know, his, that, that book, Lando Norris has made him look yeah. distinctly ordinary. Um, I thought it was interesting, indeed fascinating, on uh, the Missed Apex quiz the other day when one of the questions was, who's won more races than Daniel Ricciardo? And you remember, wow, this guy is a multiple race winner. Yeah, nine, um, For a good few years, he was the, the coming man. He was the, the guy that everyone thought when Lewis finishes, it'll be him that starts cleaning up. And it simply hasn't happened. Yeah, so... He comes in under quite a well-paid contract, having already had his forty million a year contract at Renault. So I guess there was kind of like a, an excitement and a buzz about bringing Daniel Ricciardo in. So they weren't thinking about divorce. You know, they were like newlyweds, not thinking that their marriage would ever, their love would never fade. But yet they found themselves two years in and wanting to break it. So presumably Daniel Ricciardo now holds basically all the cards. He can't force them to make him the driver, presumably, but they can, he can force their hand on the money. Exactly. And that this has happened before where teams um, have fallen out with drivers. There was uh, one case about 10 years ago with um, Sauber when they were going through distinct uh, financial problems. Uh, they had multiple drivers sort of signed up, but of course only two seats. And one of those drivers was saying, well, look, I still want to having a seat fitting, even though the team was like, there's no way you're we're actually going to put you in the car. It was all negotiated uh, out, of course. I think it actually involved hearings in Melbourne uh, to actually, in, in the courts in Melbourne, to, to try and sort that issue out. But in that instance, it was just a driver saying, look, you're taking away my Formula One career here, therefore you're going to want to be fairly compensated. And that is the exactly same situation we find here uh, with uh, Daniel turning around and saying, look, and this is a negotiation, he is therefore deliberately starting at a, a high figure. And it is therefore quite likely that that would potentially be reduced. Um, it is also possible that, and it depends how how good relations remain 
between both parties. That I mean, you know, McLaren is a large organization with a lot of different options that it could potentially do. You know, if, if, if both parties are quite happy, it could be that we end up seeing him racing in another series for McLaren. Uh, it's just increasingly looking like it won't be in Formula One. I think we also have to bear in mind, though, that it was only, I think, about a month ago, if that, that um, on social media, Daniel issued that statement saying, well, I'm definitely doing my third year. Now, it now looks like in the background he was doing that because probably the tectonic plates were shifting and he probably got wind of the fact that these um, discussions were taking place. Yeah, but and also Zach Brown was making statements saying, look, all we want for him is to be on pace with Lando Norris. And if he does that, he's staying with us. And that was quite recent. So that does kind of sound allegedly a bit like a lie, doesn't it? Uh, it does. I think sometimes, though, it's important to, to bear in mind that we see yeah. comments like yes. that. And I think those ones from Zach Brown, that they were in a in a midst a sort of more general interview that he was giving. And that was just when the subject of his driver, who you know, publicly we know from the statistics and the data that he has been underperforming. So that was just the public response, just to sort of say, yeah, you know, it was almost like confirming what the driver has been saying for the last two years, which is I want to win. I want to do well. And I'm not happy with the results either. So really it just chimed in with that. But in the current febrile atmosphere, obviously I think it got magnified. I think also we need to just bear in mind here the fact that isn't it incredibly convenient that F1's gone on its summer break and yet here we are with hot news to keep us all <laughs> entertained. And that probably is not by accident, to be perfectly honest. Um, uh, Formula One has done this, and, it's, and this isn't liberty. This is going back to the days of Bernie. You'd find that over the winter, there'd always be something that would happen to mean that people were still <laughs> talking about still you know, driver changes or teams. Uh, and that's, you know, isn't it funny that, you know, Alonso's move was announced right at the end, you know, as we come up to the summer break, and then here we are um, having having this discussion. It's keeping Formula One on the, on the news pages, of course. Ah, I don't mind it because I know I'm one of the people that wants people to click and listen to stuff and it means I've got an excuse to have you on. The counter to that is it is also like a natural kind of break point. All right, get to the midway point of the season. Now let's think what we're doing about our futures. Let's announce our retirement. So I do find that situation fascinating. I should say that with Zach Brown that I did say that allegedly and sounded a bit like rather than accuse him directly of lying. But, you know, it, it was all very close. So what was, is clear that it's likely that Piastri was on their, their radar and, and you go, well, Ricardo's performances haven't justified them uh, making good on that and keeping that third year or, or saying that, that he should stay on. But also the gap between Ricardo and Lando Norris isn't, isn't what it appears to be. Like the gap that we're seeing this year and last year, that can't be the true representation of their difference in talent. There has to be another factor. Either the car fundamentally doesn't suit him or at some point, which I think all Formula One teams do and should do, at some point they backed their their winning horse and said, OK, at least development is going your way, if not strategy parts, etc. So there's definitely like more to the story, which we could wildly speculate on, but not with a respected solicitor of the Supreme Court of England and Wales. Here. I think we stick we stick to the, to the facts, man. So um, going backwards from there, we've got Piastri making this really, really super bold statement going, I will not be driving for Alpine. No, they've got this completely wrong. All of that, you feel like, 
all those statements were playing out for future legal battles. Like Alpine being like, yes, he is driving for us. Of course he is. He has been in our cradle. We, um, you know, we've changed his nappies. We've done, we've, we've paid for all the talcum powder for his butt. And now he's going to drive for us. And then Piastri's statement wasn't the statement of a young man. That was a statement of his PR and legal team. So it felt like all of that was setting up for future litigation already. So they must have known these battles were coming up. I think you're absolutely right. And I thought it was quite telling that um, uh, I was actually reading um, Joe Joe Saywood's column, um, uh, also of this parish, and he, he made the point when that press release first came out that Alpine said, oh, yes, uh, Oscar Piastri will be driving for us. There was no quote from the driver in the press <laughs> yes. release. And ordinarily, there's some stuff that you know the driver didn't say it, but there's something along the lines of, oh, yes, I'm really looking forward to driving there and challenge and winning and podiums. Isn't this going to be great next year? Yeah, they approve um, the statement. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there's, like some, there's some g- generic... In and there wasn't even that which showed mm, there's something not right here. And that's exactly what Joe said. And sure enough, uh, we then got the uh, the social media uh, from, from Piastri that, that followed. And it is also a good point that you make that, look, Alpine will have invested a not insignificant amount of resources mm-hmm. in uh, in Piastri, uh, not just in terms of money, probably in terms of coaching, in terms of um, support and help in the junior formula, in terms of opening doors, contacts mm. in the sport. There's a there's a lot that actually ends up being invested in these um, young driver programs. Emotional and- investment, Peter. Emotional investment. Okay, that's probably not legally binding. But they are it, making well, a claim, aren't they? A specific claim. Yes, exactly. And, and I think emotional investment i think trust is the thing there as well you might think that look if you're on our driver academy and we've brought you through there might be an element of thinking well you know i I therefore you know it's almost sort of reciprocal there that you would um at least honor the terms of the agreement that you've got now that obviously we don't know what agreement is in place and it could be that uh there is nothing in his existing agreement that talks about having a race seat or it has says you know race seat in uh, in 2022, but it doesn't specify which team, which seems to be quite uh, is, is one theory that's been floated out there. Um, but for whatever reason, he's certainly felt confident that I can walk away from this agreement that he has with Alpine, uh, and that he is going to be able to look at other options, and he certainly has been doing that. Okay, so the term that kept coming up was that the option on Piastri ran out on the Sunday of the Hungarian Grand Prix, as did some kind of option with Alonso. And everyone just kept saying option, and it went on so long that I was too afraid to ask anyone what option meant. Uh, Indeed. And an option is a sort of uh, a... Very often, it's a sort of an adjunct to a contract. It, It isn't a contract that says, right, you're going to drive for us next year, but it might be something that says, we have the option to put you in our car next year. Uh, and these can go both ways. So, for example, a driver can have an option with a team. That means that, right, I could potentially have the option to go with you. It's not a drive, but it's the option that, yeah, we might well put you in a, in a race mm. seat. Um, or or it, so that, you know, the driver can have the option with the team or the team can have the option with the driver, um, which can lead to your three into two doesn't go um, situation potentially. So they're not contracts that say you're going to be in the car and this is your salary and you're going to do so many races and, um, be a part of the team. Instead, it's something that says you could have the option to be in the team, which is nebulous. And therefore, you have to remember as well that this will still be a document that has been signed, which will have terms in it. 
And those terms could vary. And in this instance, it sounds like there was an element we understand from uh, those uh, publicly released comments that maybe they were time limited. It is sometimes the case that these things are time limited. It might be an option for six months or a year or three months. It would depend on the terminology within that option and within that agreement in terms of how long it lasts. And then, for example, it could be that it lapses on one side of one for one party, but not the other. Um, so this comes down to the complexity of what's actually written down and been agreed to by the parties and what did they understand but how uh, to can, be the case How can the understanding be so different? Like someone has had to have messed up the legal side of it and, and with Alpine pulling on the emotional heartstrings of how like, oh, we bottle fed you. It makes me feel that Piastri is in the kind of technically legally right Alpine let some kind of deadline pass and now they're trying to kind of take the moral high ground. If you had the contract, I don't think they would need all of this kind of emotional blackmail. Well, here it also comes down to the what the parties have understood any agreement between them means and also what their actions may have conveyed. So if you're Piastri and you're thinking, I have had an option uh, that lasted until the summer break mm. and you've been looking at what Alpine have been doing to make sure to make good on that to think ah am I going to be in a race seat next year and you might go I mean we don't know how confidential the discussions with Alonso were indeed we, we get the idea that Alpine were actively negotiating uh, with uh, Fernando Alonso up until pretty much up until the Hungarian and Grand Prix and even during the Hungarian Grand Prix I think so on the team radio. <laughs> well, indeed. Um, uh, if, so if you're Piastri and you're sitting there thinking, well, hang on, we've got Ocon under a long-term deal. He's not going to be yeah. going anywhere. Um, they're, they're fluttering their eyelids at uh, Fernando Alonso and making, and making him want to stay. So what does that mean for me? Am I going to be uh, farmed out to a team at the back of the grid, which we understand Williams. might have been yeah. a possibility? Um or, you know, th this suddenly doesn't sound very good to me. So therefore, um, it doesn't look like I'm actually, you know, if he thought when he signed that option that that was an option to drive an Alpine, and then it look, he thought going up to that race, this simply isn't going to happen. Um, his team, his legal team around him, his advisors may be arguing that, look, um, Alpine's behaviour suggested that he wasn't going to get an Alpine uh, seat. So therefore, we've started speaking to other parties, as we are entitled to do. And therefore, now, um, you know, their interpretation will be the option has expired. Therefore, we're, we're off. In. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing stopping him having a chat with people about potential future work, is there, whilst you're under contract? But you would have had to have wait for for whatever it was to expire, you could literally have done it at one minute past midnight and gone, all right, Zach, I'm in. Potentially, but also it would depend, again, what was in the contractual agreements that were there. So it could be that when he, there is an underlying um, young driver scheme that he signed up to that says, while you are part of the Alpine young driver scheme, you do not go off talking to um, other competitors. We don't know. That could okay. be in there. And in which case they'd be saying, hang on, you've clearly been negotiating with McLaren for, for weeks slash months. So you're in breach of that. So that's why this suddenly uh, starts to get quite messy. Oh, my goodness. So it's not going to get resolved. Clearly, Alpine feel like they're owed some compensation now. They've Obviously, I don't think they, they've given up on, on Piastri 
driving for them or being contracted for them. Ricardo, we are we understand, has been officially told that he's not driving for McLaren, and then he's doing his negotiations. But one name that you mentioned in our our pre-show WhatsApp chat was it's a na- it's a name I've not heard in a long time, Peter, and I didn't think I'd hear it again. You said Briatori. Why? Um, so Oscar Piastri's manager is Mark Webber, but when Mark Webber was in Formula One, his manager was one Flavio Briatori. Uh, and uh, he used to be, of course, team principal at uh, the Enstone team under its previous guise of uh, Renault and yeah. also previously uh, Benetton. He has a long history in the sport. Um, I'm not don't think we really have time to go into uh, Crashgate. So for, for our new uh, F1 fans... Um, Google it, Crashgate 2009. He was banned from the sport and banned from the paddock um, for that uh, because the idea of, you know, forcing one of your drivers to crash into a wall at high speed, the certain sporting and ethical implications of those. It was frowned upon. Somewhat. Um, But it was also frowned upon that then he was let back into the sport. And uh, I think he's been on the grid at one of the races this year. I think Martin Brundle um, doorstepped him. Um, Martin Brundle formerly drove for Flavio Briatore when he was uh, Martin Brundle was at Benetton in 92 when uh, Briatore was a team manager but the point is is that this is a man who knows a lot of people and has a lot of fingers in toes and a lot of pies um, formerly mm. I know that some team bosses actually used to say we will not actually negotiate with Flavio Briatore and therefore we will never have any of his drivers um, but you know, that was sort of 10, 15 years ago. And as it is now, as I say, he's someone who has a big contact book. Uh, and it could be um, that this, and I couldn't help but think when I've read all about this, this, this almost has sort of echoes of things that have happened with drivers associated with Briatore in the past. Um, take a look at the Michael Schumacher documentary on Netflix. Uh, listen to interviews that both Eddie Jordan and Flavia Briatore have given um uh, within the last couple of years, on what happened when Michael Schumacher came into the sport with Jordan at the uh, Belgian Grand Prix 1991. And then, sure enough, in less than a week, he then, I think, turned up uh, in a uh, Benetton at the uh, Italian Grand Prix. Um, of course, and, uh, yes. and Eddie's talked about the negotiations that led to that. Um, and it, it's those that sort of practice that I almost felt I could see echoes off here with Alonso's move. Um, Alonso being managed by Flavio Briatore as well. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So hang yeah. on. We are, we are, I didn't realize all the strings from the marionettes went up into the same gallery. They, they did in the past. I, I mean, certainly Alonso was managed by Flavio Briatore. I presume he still is. Um, but uh, I, I stand to be corrected. So if, uh, if, if, for example, Joe turns around and says, no, that's not the case. He's now with someone else. Then, then I get that. But um, certainly in the past, it, Alonso and Flavio Briatore were very close. All right. Well, it's all coming. It's all coming together now. You could see if oh, we're getting into murky territory here. But the pace with which those decisions were made, let's say you'd had a little bit of forewarning that Alonso was going to make that shock decision and you had already made plans elsewhere you would be armed and and ready with statements <laughs> to, to issue once alpine obviously made that first initial press announcement um because yeah they did seem prepared that well now we're getting into now we're getting i think you just nod and smile peter i think you best keep yourself best keep your nose clean but yeah my goodness what a picture you're painting and also like what a mess these are 
professional race teams and they are not looking very professional at the moment. Yeah, but this has happened before. Uh, I don't, don't. I remember uh, about fifteen years ago, Jensen Button um, having a great season with what was uh, BAR, uh, the, the team that eventually became uh, yes. Braun and Mercedes. Tell, tell us this. Uh, you know, he ended up um, signing with. Uh, so he's he's with BAR. Then he signs a contract with Williams. Uh, then he decides he wants to stay with uh, BAR. Uh, lots of money uh, ended up having to change hands. Um, but it, it, these are the sorts of things that that happen not necessarily every year but every few years you sometimes find that there are the sometimes it's a tug of love over a driver um or uh, or it's uh, yeah the, these sorts of interests particularly with um competing teams and and that sometimes in this instance well i think it's the, the advisors around the drivers so clearly around piastri they've decided look um we think actually you're going to have a better option with mclaren as opposed to Alpine, which is interesting when you think Alpine is the manufacturer-funded team. Mm-mm. But then again, that's what took Daniel Ricciardo there a couple of years ago. And then, for whatever reasons, he decided, no, McLaren is better. I think that's quite an interesting context as well. Alpine must be getting quite frustrated with potentially losing talent um, uh, and having having it go to McLaren rather than uh, staying with them at this point. Oh, Peter Wright, thank you so much for your, your legal insight here. It's certainly better than us just... Uh, guessing, but you are the hang on. Let me get your fancy title right. Founder and managing director of Digital Law UK. Uh, not associated with with Formula One, but you do other clever legal things. Yes, so I, I do a lot of advice for um, uh, companies when it comes to buying and selling goods online. So things like data protection, privacy, mm-hmm. cyber security, e-commerce, or as we tend to very often call it. Um, Selling uh, highly regulated goods and services in different jurisdictions. So we've got clients from uh, from the UK and Europe to Australia and America. Uh, and uh, having founded the business ten years ago, uh, it's uh, it's growing along quite nicely. So, uh, similar in some ways to the way that Mr. Apex, of course, from from small beginnings, is now. Um, there was a wonderful stat you came out with. What is it? The largest independently owned. Wow! I, I, I'm inviting podcast. people to challenge this, but I believe we're the most downloaded host-owned independent F1 podcast. It's a very niche category that we've funneled it down to, but I think all the podcasts that are more downloaded than us are, you know, organisations. The people that present and produce it aren't the the owners of it. You know, so things like obviously great organizations such as autosport and and the race but you know it's not it's not a dude in a shed so i'm I'm thinking maybe we get the dude in a shed uh award <laughs> if there is one uh, but i'm glad that it's all going well at digital law uk and i've got to leave you to go and do some solicitoring because uh, otherwise you start charging me that words mean something very different in america oh. um so <laughs> Yeah. Um, so yeah, solicitor means lawyer. Not when you see those signs in America that say no solicitors, that means something very different. Roger that. I think we'd best leave it there. Peter Wright, thanks so yes. much for your time. <laughs> okay. And finally, this week, I am going to put myself under trial as a mono motorsportist. I am very guilty of using my precious motorsport viewing time only for Formula One. I do try and and click around. I've made efforts to watch Formula E, even though it feels at times that the organisation is actively stopping people from finding it. But when I've chanced upon it, I've enjoyed it and wished I I watched it more. I even sat and watched some MotoGP with my boy the other day, one of only three people apparently to have done so. But there is a sport so close to us 
in F1 on the evolutionary tree that I feel bad that I've not watched it. So in order to help me get more into IndyCar, I have employed, firstly, a um, uh, our token American, Matt Two Rumpets. Hey, Matt. Hey there, Spanners. Delighted you're finally going to take the plunge. Maybe, but we also do have commentator extraordinaire and Sky Sports analyst for IndyCar, Tom Gaymore. Hello, Tom. Well, thank you very much for having me. I feel like I'm actually in an IndyCar because if you watch IndyCar, you'll know with the aero screen, it's been notoriously hot over the last few years. And with the summer heat wave that we've got here in London, upstairs here feels very much like a sauna or an IndyCar with that aero screen. But I don't have a cool suit to no. keep me cool. No, no, but um, I, I am angry with you because you were you were late for this interview, but for a very good reason, Tom. Uh, tell us what you're up to because it looked like a very good cause. Yeah, I really feel bad for being late. I'm normally <laughs> prompt. I'm on time, hmm. but I was in London. It was warm in London as well, and I am an ambassador for something called Divert London, which is working with children and young adults in and around the criminal justice system. So young people that find themselves in or around police custody. And it's an early intervention program. It's about diversion. It's about hope and opportunity. A lot of young people growing up in London are growing up without that hope and opportunity. There's real social economic pressures. And these are, these are wonderful young people who just need that right pathway, that hope and that opportunity. So mm. as a, an ambassador, I support a wonderful team of people that are in there in the engine room working with these young people day in and day out. And also a team of people that are working on referral pathways because the program's only as strong as the referral pathways. So if we can't create hope and opportunity for the young people, then it, it's a very different, difficult sell. So I was in Brixton today, Brixton Custody, where the program was born many moons ago. It's uh, the brainchild of a, a young man who's not so young now, Jack Rowlands, and he won't mind the plug <laughs> there. We'll ask him. But, uh, that's what I've been doing. It's something that, that I got involved in about eight years ago, and I've been oh. passionate about ever since. It's very different, different to motorsport, and I think it's really important to, to sort of stretch your understanding and your knowledge base and be involved in, in, in other things. Fine. I guess I'll forgive you. Uh, that is uh, at Divert London, if you want to go and check that out on Twitter. But if you don't mind, Tom, I'm going to use you. Not that it's your job, but I'm going to use you to try and convert me to to Indy and to at least be checking out. Because obviously, a little bit, there's a lot of differences, spec series, going on to ovals. But firstly, obviously on the Sky broadcast, it, it speaks to how much more commercialised American motorsport is, that they kind of need a team there to handle the American commercial breaks. Yeah, well, there's no real world feed for IndyCar. So we yeah. take the international feed from NBC. And when you get the brake buffer, you, you, the, the itinerary, it's sort of 17, 18, 19 breaks sometimes uh, <laughs> through the green flag running. And it's organized chaos for us here in uh, Sky Sports HQ because sometimes you get limited notifications into the counts and or if there's action or an incident during a full course yellow, NBC will come back. So we try our best to make it look seamless and smooth, but it is it is a bit of a challenge. But it's needed because otherwise we'd have just minutes and minutes yeah. of dead time. And if you add up all the commercial breaks, that adds up to about 60 minutes. I mean, I think last week with Nashville and the thunder clock and all the delays we had i think we were on air for about five hours so i must have done about <laughs> 90 minutes of that by myself so it's 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 a it's a hard gig sometimes but it's a, a much needed 
gig and judging by the feedback you know we do bring some some good information to to those fans that a have followed indycar but also that growing audience the indy 500 was super successful in this country i think our viewing figures were very similar to what sky get for the last day of the the us open the golf so that oh. just shows you how you know how positive indycar is as a, as a product and and how well sky f1 are doing in terms of bringing that to, to the viewers so yeah with the dead time you you just you know that would just be unacceptable we had it for a bit but now you know i'm glad to be in there filling the brakes it's such a wonderful sport and i'll try and sell it a bit more <laughs> as you uh, as you ask your questions well, one thing I immediately want to know is what kind of information, aside from just, I assume, pictures from the international feed, what are they giving you to help you commentate when you're having to bounce back? And I mean, that sounds just absolutely bananas to me to have to try and do that. Yeah, it's it's very limited information. I mean, I, I actually have a, uh, a, a, a page from Firestone, so I get all the data to see if people are on sticker reds or sticker blacks or the... Guayo, you know, the Wyoli tire that we had for uh, Nashville, Tennessee, we'll get onto that. That's a green sidewall tire made from plant shrub in uh, in America. Okay, I'm out already. What's going on yeah, here? Plant wait, tires, tires. This <laughs> could right. not be going better. And it's called the Wyoli. Uh, so, so it sounds like something out of sort of a Coyote Roadrunner movie. But um, but yeah, so that was, was my insight into trying to get all scientific at the uh, at the weekend. But I have limited information, so we've got live timing, that kind of stuff. Obviously, I know some of the drivers. So Alexander Rossi spent time over here. I spent a lot of time with him. Colton Herter, you know, Callum Eilert, so, so Will Power. There's quite a few drivers that that I connect with and, and, and speak to, and that gives me that sort of underpinning knowledge and, and the insight to, to try and explain. You know, part of my job is not just to to sell the story of what's going on and the strategy because IndyCar is very much about strategy. It's about explaining a lot of the intricacies that, that IndyCar has and the push to pass and the, the tire strategies mm. and fuel, you know, we've got refueling in IndyCar and that adds a, you know, really interesting uh, scenario and, oh. and, and aspect to the strategy. And we've got three different types of courses, road course, street course, oval. So the drivers really have to test themselves across like a wide discipline of different environments okay too. well street courses are garbage so let's skip those um but let's go on to the oval because that's probably the biggest difference between oh showing some restraint there um that's the biggest difference between the the two series between f1 and indycar um having occasionally done the odd oval on the sim the strategy from a driving point of view with the draft and staying with the pack it's it's fascinating actually and it's not quite as just going around in circles as it as it seems Although I have noticed whenever I have caught an oval race, you know, you do need the old competition cautions to bunch it all back up. And we've actually manufactured that into our sim series. So I can kind of understand why they do it. Uh, it's such a different discipline. Do you think you can tempt F1 fans to go and enjoy an oval race? Well, I think, you know, just from the, the spectacle, it's dangerous to start off with. Now, we're not here to see anyone get hurt or to, to promote danger. But, you know, IndyCar racing is very much where... Some of the other forms of motorsport were a couple of decades ago. If you get into an Indy car and you haven't got the balance or you hit the wall hard, mm. it, it's dangerous and, and, you, and you might hurt yourself. And so the drivers carry that sort of mindset and respect into Indy car racing. They don't always push to the limit because if they have a car that is loose, they always say your greatest friend at Indianapolis when your car's not right is the pit lane because 
you just don't want to be out on the oval. Just quit. Yeah, 230 miles an hour to be doing those speeds. And you have two types of drivers, uh, drivers that haven't hit the wall and drivers who have hit the wall. And uh, when you when you have hit the wall, you, you have that respect and it, it, and it very much does slow you down. So that there's a real, you know, side to IndyCar racing where there's, there's a challenge. There's a mental challenge there because it pushes the drivers to the max. Kristen Lungard was talking about it at the end of the last mm. race because they're heading to an oval now. He's been really strong over the last few races on the street and road courses coming across from Europe from Formula 2. But the ovals, he's just starting to get his head around. And one of the biggest aspects is that mental aspect, the fact that it's fast and it's dangerous and it doesn't feel right. There's a squirrel going behind me. There you go. Okay. Uh, Out of context, that is going to sound weird, but let's keep that in. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the beverage behind. Okay, uh, good. <laughs> but Yeah, stars every week. But, um, but you know, that side of things is, is one of the biggest aspects. The drivers actually yeah. getting their head around, keeping their foot in. And you don't really get that in other forms of motorsport now with the way that the tracks are laid out. Daunting corners are no more daunting uh, because they have the big tarmac runoffs. If you get it loot, you know, get it wrong, you can just open up the lock, keep your foot in, run off and run back on. You don't have to spend a session building up the confidence to hit O Rouge, of course, because... You, you don't have the gravel traps yeah. there. You just straight line it and, and get it get it right the next lap. There's no real consequence there. Whereas on the ovals, there's a huge consequence. You- and so I think that's the, the the biggest aspect. And then obviously the strategy is a 500-mile race, 250 laps. And, you know, you, you, you're in that car for a long period of time. You've got to learn how to race. You've got to learn how to not compromise yourself. I mean, there's the famous J.R. Hildebrand when he crashed at the last corner because he just ran wide to, lost concentration, ran wide to, to pass a back marker and hit the wall mm. coming out of turn four and and uh and, and the rest is history dan weldon won that race of course dan weldon won that race yeah i think he did um and so you know the, the trepidation is is the big sell for me i think is there more of an appetite for the danger that side of that side of the pond because i think in europe we're sort of more and more like oh, we could take it or leave it the danger you know do as much runoff as you want really is there is it more accepted in indycar i, I don't think the you know, like I said, IndyCar pushes very hard on the safety side of things. If you look at the aero screen, the car, and you also look at the, the safety crews and the, the, the full-time commitment that they have to, to bringing those safety crews around with the IndyCar series. You know, I always say safety in IndyCar is, is second to none. I mean, they're absolutely wonderful. So I don't think they sort of promote the trepidation and the danger, but it's just there. It's it, we see it in other events, the Isle of Man TT, we see it in motorcycle racing, you know, that there is an element of danger still in certain forms of, of IndyCar and, and, and you can't eliminate that. And the ovals, I think, provide a, a massive challenge for the drivers that are coming across from Europe. You, I remember Alexander Rossi going over there, his first time ever in a, and in IndyCar was a test around Phoenix, which is a super fast oval. And and he just looked at me and he just thought he just said, "Wish me luck," you know, because <laughs> <laughs> you just don't know what to, you just don't know what to expect. Well, hasn't hasn't Lewis Hamilton basically like made comments along the lines of like, "No thanks," you know, like I, I wouldn't I wouldn't fancy and that. You've seen it. Max Chilton didn't want to do the ovals, but stayed on the five hundred. Mike Conway, who's another driver who came over to mm. Europe, had a lot of success with Dale Coyne, won at Long Beach, 
he backed out of the ovals because he had that big crash at, at Indianapolis where he broke both his legs, his feet and, and various, you know, put it in the fence. And so, you know, you do see a lot of the drivers backing out of the ovals. And, you know, when when drivers do do that, there is an element of support from from the drivers that are still committing to those oval programs because they know the the issues and the dangers. You know, Marco Andretti's talked about that. It, it, it's, it, you know, it is a side of the sport where, you know, when you when you don't feel your head's in the game for the ovals, it, it's time to pack it up. Well, doesn't that also kind of speak a little bit to just how different a discipline oval is from street or road racing or circuit racing? Yeah, absolutely. It's a completely different discipline. Just the, the way you race, the way you set up the car, the, the, the way you manage the tools in the car as well. There's so much that goes into the... The, the way the driver can impact the car. So you, you've got roll bars that you can work. You've got the weight jacker that you can change. And, and they're doing that a, a, across a lap the, the, the whole time, um, whether or not they're in qualifying in the race. So, so there's all of those things. You'll hear when they're doing a qualifying run at Indy, the spotter saying, work the tools, work the tools, work the tools. And just reminding the driver to, to keep on top of the tools, to make sure that you can keep the balance of the car there. And you only have that with experience. And it takes a long time to, to get in an IndyCar, mm. feel comfortable with turning into turn one at Indianapolis, 230 miles an hour, and start working the tools. Because when you're from road course racing or Europe, that, that's totally alien. You, you've never done that. And, and as I said, when you add the trepidation, it takes ages to, to sort of build speed. So if I'm an F1 fan, and I'm coming to watch. You have convinced me. I want to come see this spectacle. That was easy. I'm, I won't be so easy. Go on. No, no. You you were always <laughs> more difficult. At least, Bob. Um, what? How do I track the strategy? How do I? How is this strategy different with the refueling? How does that impact it? If I'm going to watch it and understand it, like with Formula One, I know I have a pit window and I watch backwards and forwards, and I can sort of get an idea of who's really racing who even just from watching the main broadcast. How do I do that with IndyCar? Yeah, I think with IndyCar, you, you have obviously the refueling across all the disciplines, the roads, the street and the oval. Uh, re refueling in oval racing, you'll see people short, short fuel. You'll see people try and work to the front. You'll see people come off strategy. So they'll start with a lighter car and they'll, they'll do various different things, get in early, have a long middle stint, try and get clean air. So, so the alternate strategy is important. They will also get their lap back. If they go a lap down, if there's a full course yellow or cautions thrown, they'll get their lap back. If they're a lap down, that, that's, that's really important. That brings you back into the game. So you can almost afford to take risks in the early stages of the race because you know that you can get your lap back or you can filter back to the front. I mean, if I look at take away the ovals. If I look at the last street race, Scott Dixon was last after 29 of the 80 laps. He pitted six times in those 80 laps and won the race. Second and third pitted twice. So he pitted six mm. times, still won the race and was last almost halfway through it. Second and third pitted twice. In and, and, and can you follow that as a viewer or does he suddenly just appear at the front? And you're like, oh. Because that's what and, used to feel sort of happen in the F1 refueling, because you just didn't know. And it was very difficult to follow. Mm. So you've got to watch the, the drivers on the alternate. And also, 
you don't know what's coming. So I always say it's a giant game of snakes and ladders. You'll land on a ladder, you'll land on a snake. So Scott McLaughlin landed on a snake twice. He did everything right. Team Penske were on it. His strategy was brilliant. But you can't control when cautions are going to fall and when people are going to crash their cars. And he was the wrong side of the, both the, the, the pivotal cautions. He was the wrong side of. And that was his snake. Where Scott Dixon was pitting to repair his car, do all the different things at the beginning of the race. But he got his lap back. He, you know, was diligent. And then he just got lucky on two, two very important cautions. And he pitted the, the right side of one of those cautions that get it, got him into the mix. Mm. And then once he was at the front, he's Scott Dixon, six-time champion. He's going to filter to the front. And he did well to hang on on used tyres because they didn't change his tyres on the last stop. To save time? Yeah, to uh-huh. save time and uh, to, to keep his track position. And that was the magic there, not changing his tyres. So there's so much in the way of strategy and with the fueling and the tyres and that kind of thing. And, and if you look at how many times he can pit and still win the race, that just adds such a fascinating dynamic for me. And just finally, because we don't want to keep you from your squirrels for too long, how much of a spec series, because there's spec series and there's spec series, a how spec is it is this spec series and, and how much of a difference does that make to the viewing? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you, you've got a spec chassis, spec tyre, and you've got a spec engine. With the teams, they can do what they like to the dampers and the springs and, and, and various different things. And then you've got some of the, the, the bigger teams have obviously very, very good simulation software and can really flex their muscles, if you like. But that said, if you look at last year, Team Penske powerhouse in the series with Chevrolet, went almost 10 races without winning a race. It was almost, or or statistically, their worst start to a season ever. And you had a rookie, Alex Pelot, rise to the top and and, Mm -hmm. steal the crown away from from the regulars. And Will Power was languishing all the way down in those championship standings. He's now at the top. And I think Will Power's average uh, finishing position is something like 6.1. I think Alex Pelot, when he won the championship last year, his average finishing position was 5.6. So you get a lot of different winners. You get a lot of different winners. Yeah, we had nine nine different pole sitters already this year. So nine different drivers on pole. It's really, really difficult to convert. Scott McLaughlin was box office all weekend this weekend. (laughs) Couldn't convert. So, you know, it's it's a tough series. And when you do win look at alexander rossi went three years without winning a race now if you look at his stock and also the stable that he's in andretti autosport that just shows you how challenging it is to get it done in indycar all right all right look i'm tempted enough listening to the the tactics and listening to the you know the the permutations and i think the the fact that you know it has some things that maybe f1 fans are looking for which is a bit more of a, a spec series different chances for different drivers and different teams to win when should i next tune in am i in the middle of a season and 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 who should i support yeah so the the next race is towards the end of august oh okay good uh, it's actually one of the harder ones to watch because it's the only race of the year that's actually on at a sort of anti-social time so i think it kicks off at at 11 p.m that's uh, an evening race. But the vast majority of the races, IndyCar are, are, are clued into this for the European audience and also with NBC. The vast majority of the races kick off our time at around 8 p.m. Ah, or good. Sort of 7 p.m. So 
just think, Sunday evening, you've watched your motorsport, your Formula One, this and that. It's either been a barnstormer or you're thinking that's... Or it's been Monaco, yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, been watching grass grow. And then you come in and you're like, right, IndyCar, 8pm, Sunday night, nothing on TV. This is going to go off. And every single weekend, without fail, it's it's a spectacle. So uh, please do tune in. And you've got Gateway left in terms of the Oval at the end of the month. And then you go to Portland and, and Laguna Seca and Monterey. So Laguna Seca, the corkscrew, where you've got the biggest elevation change of any circuit anywhere around the world. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Monterey County, the dust bowl that is, uh, that is the, the, the Laguna Seca. So, and anyone that's played computer games or what have you, they all, they've always got Laguna Seca. Yeah, it's great. On the, yeah. You know, and so, so those are the tracks. So please do tune in. You'll love it. Obviously a bit awkward, Matt. Did he say Sunday, 8 p.m.? Uh, yeah, we need to have a word with NBC yeah, okay. about this. Yeah, let's yeah. just shift it. That's when we stream, Tom. Oh, so, is it? Devastating, devastating. Well, there's always the build-up. So <laughs> that, that's when our coverage starts. That's not the green flag. I mean, as, as anybody that's watching American sport knows, that entertainment underpins American sport. So you've got a lengthy build-up with yeah. all kinds of different things. <laughs> the invocation, the command... Everything. Hey, look, know. we've got a maximum stream time of one hour. So if you can just get them to delay one hour, I think that we can make that work. Well, you're good for the, for Gateway. I think Gateway's the 28th of August, I think. And um, let me have a look. It is the 20th of August. There you go. So so that's Gateway. Fantastic. Um, hey, look, Tom Gaymore, thank you so much for, for giving us your, your time, taking time out from your squirrels and the fan that I know you're desperate to cut back on. Please go and follow yeah, Tom. A little bit. Go and follow Tom at Tom Gaymore and go and check out his uh, ambassadorship at, at Divert London as well. I'm going to check out that IndyCar race uh, as long as it starts an hour late. Thank you so much for your time and thanks for trying to convince us to go and jump on the IndyCar train. Well, that's all we've got for you this week. I hate to be that kind of YouTuber, but if you're listening on YouTube, please like and subscribe. And if you're an audio listener, make sure you're subscribed on your podcatcher of choice. And if you've got time to leave us a five-star review on iTunes, that helps us immeasurably. Also, do consider being a patron. The only reason we're here is because people have gone and subscribed to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Missed Apex. I hope you enjoy the tech show. I wasn't lying earlier. I will be checking up on the download figures. I hope you're all going to eat your greens and eat your vegetables in the form of some tech news with Trumpets and Matthew Summerfield midweek. Next week, we're going to be catching up with YouTube sensation Tomo F1. We're going to catch up with our friends at Formula Nerds to find out what's going on in the Junior Series and why we should be a little bit more investigated and we'll be talking about racing rules with my new friend Callum as well but until next time work hard be kind and have fun this was Mr. Apex podcast sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.